Podcast of the cinema. Did you like that? What I just did? <laughs> did I did I soothe you I, during I, the theme song by by gently caressing your hand? I, I thought that was a special private moment. No, us, there are no I, special private I, I, moments. Okay, fine. No, I, I I was helping you. You seemed on edge, tense, <laughs> just a little. <laughs> Hi, welcome. If you've ever listened to this before, uh, I'm Alonzo Duraldi. Yep. That lug over there is Dave White. Yes. We are film critics, and this is our podcast. Yes, uh, and y- this is our second episode of June. We're the worst. No, we're not. <laughs> I tell you why we're not the worst. Life, life, yeah. life hands you things. Electric word, life. Love, life hands you things, and says, "Why isn't this already finished?" Yeah, <laughs> cope. <laughs> and so that is what happened. Yeah. For those of you who have listened to the to this uh, podcast before, you know, as we are both film critics, uh, we are both also uh, people who write things, not just film criticism, other things as well. Once in a while, they turned in a book, finished a whole book. What was it, like three weeks ago-ish? Something like that. Four weeks ago? Ish six six I, weeks ago, whatever it is, I don't know. We were like, "Yippee, that's done." You were working on your next. You were working on the edit, <laughs> and you had this idea that you had like not just this edit, but like a next edit, like there was going to be time. And they said, "No, no, 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 this is it. no now." <laughs> and you were like, "Ah!" And so, um, but I gave you fifteen thousand extra words. <laughs> Oops. <laughs> you thought they were going to tell you what they wanted cut. <sighs> no. No. They said, you cut. Cut. Cut those words. Cut 15. Sorry. Cut 16,000 words. You said 15. You were being, you were under undershooting the basket. 16,000 words mm. that you had to cut. It took a little time. In the meantime, you know, we were watching, uh, Films. Oh yes. We even went on KCRW to review things. We did. And um but yeah, now we're back here. Doing what all of you love best. <laughs> we hope. <laughs> um so uh this round of book edits is over. Yes. There will actually be more edits, but there not, will. not the sort that you were thinking. Yeah, was going to happen. No, no, and, it, and it'll all be copy editing. Yes, from here it's on all out. little cosmetic. This comma must go. Tell you what, nothing is harder than having a book. You wrote this book, and it's kind of like a, you know, it's a survey of queer everything mm-hmm. in film history. Yeah, and you wrote, you know. 
entire entries about this or that person, this or that film. And after you put your first pass of chopping, 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 I said, give it here. <laughs> Dr. Fibes over here. Let the, <laughs> let the, let the cold, unfeeling gaze, <laughs> G-A-Z-E, of me, let me at it. This person, out that movie, out. Tough, though. It is. Because you feel like, oh, no, what if this person, like, if there were a lot, like, these are all living people. Yeah. <laughs> like, the old-timey stuff all stayed, but it's the new, listen. Yeah. That, look, too too have, many actors and filmmakers and screenwriters and every, too many people are coming out. I could have let's slow it down. I could have I could have <laughs> socked my entire word count into 1990 to the present. But I had to cover from the dawn of cinema to the present and anything that came up in you know in them early years it was like, well, you I, I got to keep you. The new rule should be unless you are particularly interesting. You should not come out. <laughs> <laughs> unless it's helping. You should <laughs> good for the community then yes if it's not eh. you're just listen before you think selfishly about coming out you should think how will this affect alonzo duralde <laughs> and future uh authors and biographers no i'll tell you you know why it's great that people are coming out because i still remember working at the advocate oh i know in the ooze. She, no, no, i remember when you were to the advocate and some like rando would be on the cover and and i'd be like was this who is this and you'd be like this is the person we could get yeah yeah now it's a it's an embarrassment of riches but boy back then as i said too many of you are coming out now you're making life difficult <laughs> for alonzo and, and you know and i'm surprised that more people weren't savvy to that like they didn't and by you i mean celebrities if yes. you're listening to us it's chances are that <laughs> you are so famous Chances are you are not a celebrity if you're yes, listening to us, true, or if true. you are somewhat famous, you're not like Tom Cruise level famous yet. No, probably. But not. then again, who is? Yeah, this is also this true. Yeah, he barely is. He's yeah. Um, yeah. So I would say that uh, I'm. I'm thinking about it now. So I'm we're just, not talking about anybody listening to the show. No, no you guys do your you, thing. You're you're fine. Everybody. Everybody come out. Everybody's yes. free to feel good. That's right. And if you get that reference, you already came out. Fly those flags high. <laughs> uh, I was just thinking about the fact that I'm surprised that more people in the 2000s didn't get in on the grift of realizing that if they were in <laughs> any kind of media, any kind of yeah, you can, and entertainment, you sports, politics, whatever, they're going to put you on the advocate. Just all there you is a do, cover waiting. Do you have for an you? EP that you want to put out? And you don't have an audience yet. We put they'll put you on the advocate. We put teenagers from reality shows on that cover. <laughs> like it was anybody. Please declare your major. Yeah. So, um, sorry, sorry, twenty first century uh, celebrities and and queer people of film and television. Well, yeah. mo- it was film, film, really, not television. I had to get ruthless. God, uh, can you imagine? TVs were everything's <gasps> blowing up. Can you imagine if it was like, oh, just write about the queer 
presence on television in the past 20 years. Yeah, you'd that's, have a, that, that's a you'd whole... You'd have that whole book. Another book. In fact, that book is called Hi, Honey, I'm Homo, and our friend oh, Matt right. wrote it. That's right. So you all should that's that right. It's, 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 it's out new. there in the world on sale wherever books are sold. It's new. Yes. Uh, please buy it. We love Matt Baum. Yes. Um, so, uh, the um, anyway, all those people had to get chopped. Chopped. Sorry. No hard feelings. Yeah. That's the name of a movie we're reviewing. Oh, this, what a segue. This episode. <laughs> what a segue. <laughs> I'm looking at my email right now. My email is open. Mm-hmm. And I'm not wearing my glasses, but I'm about to put them on right now. Mm. Because an, I saw a subject line that I thought said, boil your pants in corn water. <laughs> <laughs> and it actually said, boil your pasta oh. in corn water. Meaning, like, boil up your corn on the cob first. First. Keep the Take water. it out, keep the water, and then boil your pasta in it. I don't know what that's supposed to do. More gluten? I don't. I don't know. Maybe it makes it just like thicker and starchier or whatever. Could be. I mean, I'm not going to try this today. I'm certainly not going to boil my pants. Well, not in corn water. In corn, in corn on the cob water. Um, but it is corn on the cob season, which I'm very excited. It's, about. Yes, it is very soon. And um, in fact, did you see any at the grocery store yesterday? I, I did Pardon not. Me. I did not look, but I will start. You. Did, you what do you mean you didn't look? It's right. It was right there in the produce section. Well, you, yes, but you if gave, you had eyes to see. I was in the there. produce section with a list, and so I was looking at my list and looking for the things on that list. Um, I'm sorry, you had a list, and you still brought home two pints of ice cream that were not on the well, list. Well, I mean, come you on, you could have brought home a couple of ears of corn. That was a necessity, and just said, "Here, make these for me. I need corn on the cob, and then save the water for pasta." Right. I or will wear your pants. <laughs> I will start looking for corn on the cob and stone fruit because we're getting into both of those. Yeah, seasons. yeah, yes, yes, for sure. Also, for the thing about the, the corn on the cob is that I need to, uh, I need yes, to, I need to have it because you're making the thing. Because I'm making right. Nancy's cornbread, and well, I need to. We what? have a, we have a Patreon where we have an entire program dedicated to our food adventures. It's a it's a food podcast hosted by two film critics. Yes, yeah. Um, we didn't ask to do it; it was asked of us, and now. I think we're very successful <laughs> at it. Maybe we're not. We, but anyway. We have the right spirit. If I you think. go to I think so too. If you if you go to patreon.com slash linoleum knife. Yes. That and so many other shows. You'll see all the other things we're doing. I, I'm especially honestly, while we're talking about Patreon, can this be the only time we talk I'm, about Patreon? Yes, the, okay. For sure. I'm especially excited this summer for this thing that we're that we're doing. Um a couple months back, so I should start over. We have a thing on the Patreon called the LK Club Meeting. Yes. Once a month, we all watch a movie at the same time and talk about it on Discord. We have a Discord room. Yeah, okay. we watch it on a streaming service together. On some kind of streaming service, uh, Netflix, Tubi, uh, whatever. Uh, but never again. What was that other one that we were uh, never oh, doing? Pluto it? TV. Pluto, Pluto Too sucks. many ads. Too many, too many ads on Pluto. They suck. We're not doing that. Um, the, uh, a couple months ago, Netflix dropped three Hitchcock movies all at once. Rear Window, The Birds, and Marnie. And, and I said, uh, okay, Rear Window, we already did a long time ago as a club meeting. And, um, 
No, 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 no. I'm getting this wrong. They dropped Psycho, the birds, yes. and and Marnie. Right. And I said, eh, Psycho. Everybody knows Psycho. Everyone's seen Psycho. So we put it up to a vote, which we had never done before. We yes. had never let people vote on the club. It's not a democracy, generally. It, not it wasn't, but uh, it's turning into one. And and everybody made me proud because I thought I'm I I want to watch the birds again because that's like comfort viewing for sure. me. Watching people get their eyes pecked out and watching them attack Tippy Hedren's hair. That's yeah. awesome. Also, Tippy Hedren's outfit in uh, in The Birds is great. Yes. Suzanne Plachette is there being like a lesbian kind of. No, she's, uh, she's heartbroken because Rod Taylor didn't marry her. Hmm. Okay. <laughs> Trust me, there are Hitchcock lesbians with Suzanne She's, Plachette and the birds. I don't know. I don't know if that's true. <laughs> the way she looks at Tippy, <laughs> I'm seeing, I'm seeing lesbian things. I spin the birds. I think is what we're going for. I'm here, seeing but, lesbian things. In okay, the birds. fine. So, um, everybody chose Marnie. Yeah, <laughs> and this is, it warmed my heart that everyone chose Marnie because Marnie might be one of the most perverted, weird, unsettling. <laughs> Yeah, of, a, a Hitchcock of movies, Hitchcock movies. Yeah, that, and this that's a high bar. Yeah, right. And so um, we're grading on a curve. Everybody here. was like, "Yeah, Marnie." <laughs> I was like, "Y'all are terrible people." So I had this big idea: let's do all summer long yeah. votes, but let's all vote right now about the films the of June, July, and August. And and so I was like, let's do cult films slash things you'd see at a drive-in in 1975, mm-hmm. right? And so we put up a list of like, I don't know, 15 movies, something yeah. like that. From from a variety of streamers. From, oh, different, from different eras, like the 60s, the 70s, the 80s. Yeah. And because um, that's basically the drive-in era. Sure. Right. The drive-ins were dying in the eighties, but but they were still I mean still the 50s, rolling. They were, you know, and the fifties too. Yeah. They were big in the fifties. Yeah. So everybody picked. I was shocked at how the votes went. Out of the three films that were picked, two of them are actually good. Yeah. Yeah. So for the first for June, we've already done June. Yeah. Everybody voted for Assault on Precinct Thirteen, the John Carpenter movie. From 1976. Uh, grim, brutal, intense, tense, very intense thriller, uh, and it's great. Yeah. And then for July, uh, everybody picked Night of the Comet, mm-hmm. which is from 1985. It's a sci fi horror, end of the world, Valley Girl. <laughs> <laughs> it's an apocalypse mall movie. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and I'm stoked for that. Me too, because I'm missing the uh, anthology cinemas or anthology films uh, mall series. Anthology film archives in New York. Yes, yeah. anthology film archives is doing a, a mall series in in August. That just seems that's really going to be cool. great. Do you live in New York? You need to go do this. Yeah, you go see go Golden Eighties. It's amazing, especially Golden Eighties. Yeah, yeah. Chantal Ackerman's nineteen eighty four five something film, like that eighty six. Something. It's a musical. It is a, a musical mall. set in a Belgian mall. Yeah, but it's really about the aftermath of World War Two. Yes. So anyway, um, 
And then, and then in August. And then August. And then comes August. And the one with the most votes is the, the clear winner. The crappiest of all. Like, of the entire list. I mean, really shame on you for making it a choice. <laughs> I blame you more than I blame What's our it? Patreon people. The thing about this choice is that um, it's garbage. This movie is complete garbage. And yet, a mind-boggling film to watch, and everyone must see it. I suppose. So that would be Mac and Me. Yeah. The E.T. ripoff movie from the late 80s. That Brought was to you by McDonald's. McDonald's. McDonald's made a movie in the late 80s, and it was about an E.T. that loved to eat McDonald's food. And his name was Mac. And his name was Mac. He's a little Mac. Not a big Mac. He's a little, 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 little Mac. If you've ever seen Paul Rudd on uh, the Conan O'Brien yeah, yeah, show, yeah. Yeah. you've seen at least one scene from Mac and Me. So, that's great. That's what happens on Patreon. Patreon.com slash Linoleum Life. Let's uh, review films because we got to get out of here yes. in about an hour yes. so that you can go see Mission Impossible 6, 7. Which one is this? Uh, Dead Reckoning Part 1. All right. I don't know what number we're I'm not going because it's at night and it's at Paramount. Yes. And that's... And it's super long. It's super long, and the seats are uncomfortable in that big theater. I've been there so many times. Um, they're not uncomfortable for a person with a normal body, but I currently don't have a normal body. Uh, friend and neighbor Gary Cotty is Just currently... gave me the greatest idea. Oh, well... Is was... that what you were going to say? No, I was going to... We, we, we can get there, say? too. Friend and neighbor Gary Cotty is currently re-watching all of the all Mission of Impossibles yes. to get ready for this yeah. one. And he just got to Ghost Protocol, which is still my favorite. And he says, yeah, it's, we're four movies in, and finally the smartphone has been invented. So right. one, th- one through three, you're dealing with like zip disks and Motorola razors still in this high-tech spy movie. Right. Well, that was the high-tech of that time. Oh, yes. No, but you know, it's, I think people forget that the first Mission Impossible movie came out 27 in years ago. In the 90s, ago. yes. Yeah. Uh, you're going to see that. I'll see it when it opens, but I'm going to have to like... Figure out a way. Uh, it's not. It's it's too long for comfort. It's not so long that I would have to say no to it. Mm-hmm. But today I just learned that Oppenheimer is actually three hours even mm-hmm. long. And I do want to see Oppenheimer. But friend and neighbor Gary Cotty gave me a great idea because I have the AMC stubs yeah. thingy, right? Where you, you get... Three free films, well, free. You pay 25 bucks a month, and you get three free movies a week. Right. Three tickets a week for $25 a month. That's 12 films a month. You go see 12 films a month at an AMC theater, you will have spent approximately $2 per movie. Per movie. $2? Yes. And he said, well, you get three a week. Why don't you go see 90 minutes of Oppenheimer on a Monday morning? And then 90 minutes of Oppenheimer on a Tuesday morning. Why don't you just get a ticket one day and then a ticket the next day and divide it in half? And that will save your body the stress. And he was so smart to tell me that because I didn't know how I was going to do it. Right. I just can't sit in a movie theater seat for three hours. So that's what's going to happen, I think, maybe. I don't know. Curse, curse you, hip arthritis. So, there's a French movie. Yes. That just opened. 
in New York and Los Angeles, and I don't know where else. Uh, but be on the lookout. Yes. Now, if uh, if you remember a few years back, there was a French film called Stranger by the Lake. Sort of a gay murder mystery whodunit. Speaking of Hitchcock. Who's having sex on the beach? Yeah. <laughs> who 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 had sex on the beach and then murdered the person? Exactly. Like, we don't know. Will he make love to me or murder me? Right, yes. Uh Strange by like from a film French filmmaker named uh Alain Giraudy. 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 Yeah. How do you know it's a G and not a J? Because it's G U I. That's G. Oh. Yeah. Oh. Okay, cool. You sure about that? <laughs> Two years of high school French, baby. I'll have you know I just wrote a book about queer cinema. Oh, that's right. You did. <laughs> uh, anyway, he's got a new movie. Yes. Uh, and it is. I'm going to tell you the plot-ish. Main dude, his name is Metric. He is uh, a, a software person. Mm-hmm. Does a job with computers. Yeah. And he's a, he's lonely. You know, he lives in an apartment building alone in kind of a meh kind of apartment. It's it's fine. It's kind of bland and nondescript. He lives in... Uh, uh, Clermont-Ferrand. Which is smack exact center. It's the Kansas of France. <laughs> it's, it is the exact center of France. There's a middle-aged sex worker named Isadora, and she kind of, you know, walks around and attracts clients. Yes. And she takes them to this local uh, hotel where she's kind of well-known by the staff. Yeah, I I get the impression that the room she has there is her room-ish. Yeah. But she also has a home. Right, when she goes to when she clocks out. At I'm the just end saying, of the day. I don't think they let anybody. They don't, they don't rent that room at anybody else. She's, she's a very nine to five kind of sex worker. Oh yeah, like, no, like for she's sure. home for dinner. Yeah, um, she leaves work at the office, and I think it's a very yeah. healthy uh, attitude in this day and age. Uh, and so they become involved. Yes, and not as a client, uh, 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 you know, product client situation, right. but as. We are both super horny for each other. Yes. Let's do it. Okay. There is also a young Muslim man named Salim. And these three characters uh, find themselves crisscrossing each other's paths in increasingly uh, wild ways that you are not, you do not see coming. What happens on the first encounter between Metric and uh, Isadora is there is a terrorist attack. They are interrupted mid... They are interrupted mid-sex by the news on the TV of this terrorist attack. Almost immediately after that terrorist attack, Salim enters the picture. And he's kind of on the run somewhere. He doesn't have a place to go. We don't know why he doesn't have a place to go. He's stuck in the rain. He's wet. He needs to get dry. Metric says, okay, I don't have any money. Come on in. You can get dry. And I'll, sleep in the hallway. Sleep in the hallway. It's fine. And the news keeps saying that, like, that at least one of the perpetrators of the terrorist incident is, you know, at large. Yes. Now, 
at first, Metterick thinks, is he one of the terrorists? And then he feels bad for thinking that Salim is one of the terrorists because he's like, is it racist for me to think that this person might be one of the terrorists? But then all of his suspicious neighbors begin to think that he might be one of the terrorists. Isadora's uh, got a jealous and violent husband. Metterick has a co-worker named Florence who keeps trying to have sex with Metterick, but he doesn't want he's her. Not interested. There's a young woman named Charlene who works in the hotel that Isadora, uh, you know, uses. Frequence. And she becomes involved in all this too, and she might be in love with Salim. Salim might also be gay. And in love with Metterick. And in love with Metterick. Salim is also being pursued by other young uh, Arab men, like late teenagers, early 20s kind of guys, who, they w- who wish to harm him. We don't know why. For reasons unknown. It turns out that all the suspicious neighbors who think that Salim might be the terrorist have all also been helping him, <laughs> like feeding him, giving him a place to be. And the neighbor who seems to be the most suspicious of him turns out also to be Arab himself. Yes. Which we don't know at first. We don't know that at first. Uh, and it is a wild, wild movie. It is a, it's a, it's a comedic farce. It's a sex farce about geopolitics. Yeah. It is about the current state of contemporary contemporary France, but also about every modern Western industrialized country where the push from the right has drastically increased across the board. Mm-hmm. And so racial, sexual, political turmoil keeps turning people against each other. But this kind of flips it upside down. And in a way, what you find is that these people who initially distrust not only the young Muslim man, but also each other. Yeah, their own French neighbors. Their own French, their own white French neighbors. Um, everyone begins to sort of form this community of care <laughs> with with each with each other and so uh because also because it's by Alain Giraudy uh it's also very horny uh and it is about what your desire can do to you and how your identity can screw you up and it's about a lot of things it's about a lot of things and it's so cool and so funny and so strange. If you remember Stranger by the Lake and you finished watching it and you thought, wait, what, what? happened? <laughs> You'll yeah. feel exactly the same way. He plays a lot with tone in his <laughs> films. <laughs> when you watch this one. Uh, also, this is kind of a Christmas movie. It's absolutely a Christmas movie, and I will tell you why. Because one of the all-time great films that is set at Christmas time, My Night at Mons from Eric Romer, also takes place in this exact same city. Yes, Semaphoron. And in the same way that My Night at Mons is about a man with nowhere to go finding shelter with a woman, this is about a young man with nowhere to go finding shelter with a group of people. Right. Um... The, the the allegorical nature of the nativity story is something that is 
that has a precedent in the Old Testament where you the story are, of the Good Samaritan. where you are advised and commanded, in fact, to uh, welcome the stranger yeah. into your life and take care of them. Um, if you know anything about the Old Testament, the the and and then the new, <laughs> you will read that the reason in the story of Sodom and Gomorrah, the reason that it was leveled was because the people there had become awful to each other and to people needing help from outside. So when the stranger comes to you, and I don't mean the strangers who are with bags on their heads, with knives in their hands. When the stranger comes to you, when the, the outcast person comes to you, when the immigrant person comes to you, when the person with nowhere to go and nothing at all comes to you and you don't help them, you are a bad person. <laughs> so Yes, the sin of Sodom is not sodomy. The sin of Sodom <laughs> is inhospitality. Yes, that is... Um, uh, that's what my night at mods is kind of about, and that's what this is also about. Yeah. So this is a Christmas movie. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and also it's being released now. Yes, by Strand. <laughs> it also kind of reminded me of uh, uh, some of my favorite Buñuel movies because there's this, <laughs> yes. there's this sort of running bit where every single time that that Mederic and Isadora try to get together, there's always some interruption, whether it's a mm -hmm. nosy neighbor. Or a terrorist attack, or yeah. something like they never get to, you know, complete the act, and it's it's like the people in uh, in Exterminating Angel or or Discreet Charm who never get to have dinner. <laughs> exactly. Um, it's very funny. It's full of surprises. I really really like it. Yeah. It's called Nobody's Hero. Uh, if it comes to you, and it will eventually, because it is released by Strand, it will fan out. Because it is from Strand, it will be streaming and on DVD, Blu-ray, soonish. That too. I betcha. Uh, like it's got a real quick uh, theatrical life here in Los Angeles right now. Mm. So get on it. If you live here in LA, it's ready there. Yeah. It's ready for you. Go go go. Yeah. Um. Then we saw Asteroid City. Mm -hmm. New Wes Anderson. Do you not like Wes Anderson? You will not like this film. <laughs> Do you love Wes Anderson? Then your name is Dave White, and you will love this movie. I saw a joke on Facebook today. A uh, guy who hates Wes Anderson walks into a bar, and everybody knows because he won't shut up about it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, so the trailer for this film shows... Uh, a vividly colored but also sort of sun-faded atmosphere uh, in the American Southwest in the, what, 60s? 50s. 50s, 60s, sometime around that time. Those cars are 50s. Are they? Okay. That is not the setting of this film. The setting of this film is uh, inside a black and white television. That is, people have accused him for years of making dioramas, and here is the ultimate diorama. This film is literally taking place inside a black and white television. And it is broadcast, it's the broadcast of a play about the making of a fictional play about a highly stylized and vividly colorful story <laughs> that takes place in a small desert town during a teen science competition. Yes. And sometimes so, we go backstage of the play 
that is being that is the subject of the tele the teleplay. Yeah. Um I'm not gonna list all the people in this movie. There's about two dozen name actors in this film. What I love about the power of Wes Anderson is that his his actors, you know they sent him handwritten letters. <laughs> Or, or typed, or Tom Hanks style typed on an old timey typewriter. Right. Ever seen when people get notes from Tom Hanks? They're always typed. Yes, yeah, Underwood on, on an actual typewriter. Um, you know they send him little handwritten or hand typed notes and say, "Please, please, can I, can I please? I know you've got Tilda Swinton already locked in, <laughs> in for one of these things. Maybe Bill Murray, uh, Ed Norton, but Jason Schwartzman. But as for everyone else, like." I would like, I would put like, me in, coach. Put me in, yeah. Because some of these folks show up and they are on camera for under three minutes of screen time. Yeah. Matt Dillon is, you know, a stagehand. Basically, he, yeah. he plays a mechanic in one scene. Yeah. And I think maybe you see him again at the end. Yeah. I will say, Matt Dillon, very good interpreter of Wes Anderson acting. Oh, for sure. Yeah. Um, anyway, everyone stands on their very precise mark. <laughs> and they deliver their very precise deadpan dialogue. I don't know how to describe the plots because there are multiple plots and they move in, as we just said earlier, it's about this, but it's about this, but it's about this, but it's about this. You're like overlapping circles that I said this on KCRW, like figuratively speaking, they're held up to a mirror, held up to another mirror. Like this is the most discursive Wes Anderson film that I have ever seen. Um, even the dialogue at times, down to the sentences that people speak, become their own kind of circle. Mm -hmm. uh, I gave this as an example on KCRW. It's not, it's not an actual line of dialogue, but it's, akin to actual lines of dialogue it says sometimes I think I'm all alone in the universe sometimes and that happens a good half a dozen times during the film people speak that way and it is because it is a film about where do stories begin and end and why do you tell them in the first place and are they for you or are they for an outside audience and why do we all need them so much? What do they mean to our lives? Um, I know that sounds like big and unwieldy and unclear, but the micro focus of, of Mr. Anderson makes his larger themes easier to grasp, I believe. I did like this movie. I, I, I was fortunate to get to see it twice. Uh, I, I went to a press screening, but then I saw it again with you. And I liked it much more on the second viewing when I came to understand that this is not a movie about Asteroid City. That this is a movie about theater and acting and storytelling and all of that stuff. Because the, the Asteroid City part is basically the sort of end point of all the other things that it's about. It is the creation of this <clears throat> fictional playwright that Ed Norton is portraying in the TV play. Um, and while the play is the movie, even though the movie is obviously a movie and not stage-bound in any way, it is, you know, outdoors and 
you know, uh, in, in a very anamorphic screen. Uh, obviously, the, the aspect ratio changes as we go to different places. The backstage of the New York theater where this is allegedly being staged is in black and white. Um, and it is in some of those moments that we get some of the, the, I think, some of the truest moments and the moments that are most sort of driving home what the sort of dramatic, you know, points of the story are. I mean, uh, Adrian Brody plays the Elia Kazan-like director of the play, and he's never in Asteroid City. He only exists backstage. Jason Schwartzman has what is arguably the most powerful scene in the film, you know, outside of the theater on a smoke break with another performer who was going to be in Asteroid City, but then wasn't. Yeah. Uh, you know, and, and so you have to kind of take in all of those levels and all of the different, you know, the circles, as you say, of this film to really kind of wrap your arms around all the things that Anderson's trying to do here. And I think he's doing them pretty effectively. Oh, I think more than effectively. I think this might be one of my favorite films from him. Okay. And I've only seen it once, and I want to go back. It might become one of my favorites of his. Uh, I, I It's funny. I just did a, a podcast uh, called Out Now, and everybody had very different... We didn't like do a ranking or whatever, but when people talked about what their favorites or least favorites were, it was they were all very different. And and I think that you know if I were to go back and revisit these films, I might find that ones I liked more, maybe now I like less, and vice versa. I've always been mystified by the fact that our friend Matt Zoller Seitz, who is a you know one of our leading Wes Anderson scholars, has written uh -huh. several books about his work. You know, when he toured for the first book, the film that he chose to screen yeah. when he was on a book tour. Uh, was The Life Aquatic. Yes. Which didn't work for it's me. It's your least favorite. Yeah. Maybe not my not my least favorite, but it's down there. Yeah. Uh, and, but, but again, I haven't seen it since it came out. Perhaps now, if I were to take a look at it, I would get what I'd missed before, you know? I think one of the criticisms that people often level at him is that he's, he's removed from emotions. Mm -hmm. He's more He's more interested in creating these artificial environments and being witty. Um, and while that is what's happening, I always think there's an emotional component. Oh, yeah. And, and I always find those emotional components to be what the films are about. You know, and, I, and I'm, I'm almost always moved by it. Uh, this one, that core of it is from Jason Schwartzman and Scarlett Johansson, who are in need of something, each of them, and they meet and they form this bond. He is a grieving widower, and she has been involved, you know, with bad men. Yes. And so... The characters that they play in Asteroid City, mind you. That's, we also meet them as the we actors. We also meet them as the actors characters. when they've got their own stuff going on there as yeah. well. Um, but so... And I found the I found those stories within stories very very affecting, um, and this 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 element of his of his work has gone all the way back to Bottle Rocket, mm -hmm. where people need stuff from each other, and they they go about getting it in these sort of convoluted ways, but they always keep going for it. They keep looking for the thing they need from each other. And quite often, 
They are dealing with some sort of grieving process. That's through Royal Tenenbaums, Rushmore, um, Rushmore, uh, Darjeeling, mm-hmm. uh, just all the way, all the way through to this. Yeah. Um, simultaneously, or I should say, concurrently, his environments become more and more artificial. Yes. The level of artifice in his films just expands and expands and expands to the point where now we have human beings and stop motion animation <laughs> fully interacting. Yeah. Uh, if you've never seen the, the uh, illustrations of Bruce McCall, he passed away recently. I urge you to Google him. Uh, the way that he captured the 50s as sort of beautiful and grotesque at the same time by sort of exaggerating what was already kind of big be it the cars or the buildings or whatever. Uh, There were moments in Asteroid City, the way that he portrays this fictional town uh, that reminded me of of Bruce McCall's stuff. But yeah, no, I agree. I think that that Anderson gets a bad rap for the the externals, but I think he starts with the internals and works his way out to that. And he's as interested in the emotional factor as he is in the, the, you know, very high levels of style that are always on yep. display. And yeah, this is a movie that is always great to look at. And and I, I I really recommend that people see it in the theater because again, it is this you know, it's shot on film and and the the Asteroid City stuff is such a beautiful anamorphic and the 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 color palette is just right, but the way that it jumps back and forth between that to the black and white theater to the black and white television, you know, and and so on, I think really pops on the big screen and you want to kind of take all that in. Christy had an interesting theory. Yes. That this is a movie that, that is, this is kind of a post pandemic movie because, or at least the pandemic played into it as they were putting it together. Yes. Because like, think of all those scenes between Jason Schwartzman and, uh, and uh, Scarlett Johansson where they're standing in different little cabins. They're not even near each other. Yeah. Yeah. But they're, they're in windows. Right. They're framed by windows. Like they're having a real life zoom call. Right. Right. Um, And the fact that this thing that happens in asteroid city uh, at one point, the kid played by Jake Ryan from eighth grade, he's like, well, nothing's ever going to be the same again. And then by the end of the movie, like everything is back to normal and people are, back to going about their regular routines, even though this seemingly, you know, enormous event has taken place. Yeah. I, no, that's, that's a good point. And I, once I see it for a second or third time, which I do believe it will reward, you know, your, your, your appreciation of it. Yeah. I mean, he even peppers the dialogue with references to things of people talking about quote unquote, the play. Yeah. That it's not until the second or third time that you, you get to take all those in. But so, yeah, he organizes artifice to make sense of the world. And, and I think that that is, that is often an underappreciated uh, aspect of his, of his filmmaking. I think that we focus so much on the, the visual world that he's giving us that we think that's all he's giving us. Yeah. And honestly, if that were all he was giving us, it would be enough. <laughs> but he's better than that. He's yes. a great, I think, uh, filmmaker. Um, and if he ever decides to go full chill, <laughs> like uh, something absolutely devoid of human emotion and, and, and only like pure uh, cinematic like 
visual experience, fine. I could watch. But that it. hasn't happened yet. No, uh, yeah. yeah, but if you felt like it, I could watch an entire movie of like the fake seventies book covers from the Royal Tenenbaums. <laughs> That's so my jam. Um. Anyway, I could talk and talk and talk and talk about this, I, and I shan't because we have other films to discuss, yes. and we only have about thirty minutes left to talk about yes. them. Uh, let's go to No Hard Feelings. Sure. Why don't you talk about what that's about? Yeah, so uh, Jennifer Lawrence is starring in what is, I think, along the lines of Bridesmaids, an, an economic crisis comedy. She plays a, a bartender on Montauk, Long Island, who has inherited her mother's house but can't keep up with the property taxes because, you know, all the awful rich New Yorkers keep coming in and jacking up all the property values. And uh, they garnish her car for non-payment of taxes. And without her car, she can't be an Uber driver over the summer, which is where she will make enough money to pay off the taxes. So, you know, the, that catch-22. Uh, she sees an ad on Craigslist for a couple that is offering a Buick Regal to a woman who will, quote-unquote, date their uh, 19-year-old son who has just graduated from high school, who is heading to Princeton in the fall, and is very shy and socially awkward. He doesn't leave the house, he doesn't leave his room, and um, they want somebody to sort of break through and... Uh, you know, make a man of him in the old sense of the... That's what they used to call it. That's what they used to call it. Yeah. Um, and so... And she, this movie is nothing if not a, a, a sort of, you know, callback to films of the sort where people would say things just like that. Exactly. <laughs> so, yeah, so she wants that car. So she sets out to seduce this guy and, you know, finds it ever so difficult but of course, as they get to know each other, uh, she kind of comes to realize that, you know, he's actually pretty great, even though, you know, he's been sort of helicopter parented his whole life. And he kind of breaks through uh, a lot of her defenses because she has her own sort of like parental issues and intimacy issues and that kind of thing. Uh, and the that second part of it may come as some consternation of the people who were led to buy a ticket by the marketing of this film, which was like rated R. It's going to be so <laughs> raunchy and outrageous. And yes. there are outrageous moments. Um, most no, well, I, I, at this point, it's not even a spoiler because it's been talked about on the internet so much. What? The beach scene. Um, where has it been talked about on the internet? Uh, well, Christy got something wrong about it. And like, what did it, she get wrong? She said that it was CG'd. And it wasn't. It was not. Oh, so that's that's, that's a thing that happened. That's a thing that yes. The the actor Jennifer Lawrence yes just did just did yes. right on man. Yeah, she 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 gets into a naked brawl on a beach. <laughs> she she's like skinny dipping with the kid, and these three jerk teenagers try to steal their clothes. So she comes bounding out of the water and like beats the crap out of them while naked. Yeah, and it's it, it's the apex of this movie because it it, it is just. The, it's it's the big it's the big audience going oh, oh my god kind yeah, of thing yeah. yeah right you just you can't believe it's happening um, and you know I, look I was less annoyed with the sort of warm fuzzy center of this film than you were I think I was annoyed were, by you it. were put off by it. I was annoyed by it yeah but you know there's a there's a really terrific um, ensemble uh, you know the kids parents are played by. Uh, Matthew Broderick and Laura Benanti. Um, there's uh, 
Uh, Andrew Barth Feldman, who was one of the uh, Broadway Evan Hansons, is the lead kid, and he's quite good and has a has a musical number that's really terrific. Uh, Natalie Morales. So, like, you know, there's there's a lot going on here, and I think it. Oh, uh, Evan Moss Backrack. Now that yes. the bear is back, he pops up. Yeah. Um. Yeah. I. You know. So yeah. I. I, I wish they had sort of maintained the arness all the way through, but I, it didn't bother me uh, that they decided to go the route of actually like you know turning these characters into human beings and being concerned with their, you know, souls, I guess. I don't know. Okay, fine. <laughs> uh, a friend of ours, uh, who is a critic, uh, raised the uh, interesting notion that the movie never stops to contemplate the notion that the kid could be asexual or aromantic. I have been reading that on the internet. Um, and I welcome the day when we have that uh, narrative in a film yeah. where a person, you know, uh, a character gets to be that. Yeah. I don't think the people making this film uh, thought if, it through. <laughs> thought, no, no, no. I, saw, I don't think that it's not that I don't think they thought it through. I think they just thought, well, we're, that's not the movie we're going to make. I'm not saying the character had to be one of those things. I'm just saying we could have had a line of dialogue acknowledging that Correct. yes, that, that he was not, you know. That and, could have been. And then move on. That could have very well been put into the script. One that the, the, the always elusive, the one line of dialogue that would make everything seem to make more sense. Yes. Yes. Um, so what I wanted was for this movie to to sprint across the finish line and not take a hand-holding stroll across the finish line. <laughs> because it starts strong. Yeah. And then, like, to, to go along with the sprint, you know, uh, metaphor. Uh, metaphor, it hits a full, like, fifth gear vroom, by the middle and then comes the feelings yeah. and and I was promised uh, raucous raunchy R-rated right. comedy when you are marketing a film and you go about it in a way that heavily emphasizes that you are going to be y'all we're going to get bad and wrong yeah. right you slap a giant pink rated R stamp on your one sheet. On your one sheet, which is what they have done. Yeah. That is that is literally what has happened. No, not content to have the little rated R box down at the bottom right hand corner of the film. They are aggressively marketing this film as y'all haven't seen something like this since 1988. You know exactly. what I mean? Um so I was enthusiastic. I was looking forward to that level of irresponsibility. <laughs> <laughs> and they give it to you a little bit. Right. And, they pull and then they give it to you more. And then they, then they pull back for feelings. Um, and I have chosen since watching it and since talking about it on KCRW to stop reviewing the film I wish I had seen. <laughs> yeah, I think in the final analysis, like if I'm looking at this as a comedy, I laughed enough. 
you know, I, there are some comedies where like it's it's wall to wall, and I love the whole thing. There's ones where the the laughs are periodic, and 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 the final analysis not frequent enough. This one, I feel like I was amused and entertained throughout. Um, if I'm going to complain about one more thing, I wanted more class warfare. Mm. Uh, the the entire premise of this movie is the people in the town, the year rounders. Yeah, I grew up in a summer town, and when I say grow up, I mean. From, from birth to age 13. So I spent my early childhood in a summer town yeah. where Labor Day, buildings literally board up <laughs> for the winter. That's it. It's done. If you go to the beach in December in my little hometown in the, co- the seacoast of New Hampshire, you are alone. You're getting to walk on the beach alone, like a like an old Barry Manilow song. Like it's, <laughs> it's it's it is just like that. And in the summertime, the population booms to five times the the size, and a lot of terrible people yes. <laughs> come to visit for the summer. And when there's one set of footprints, that is where Jennifer Lawrence carried you naked. Yes. Yeah. Um, regarding Jennifer Lawrence. My comic misgivings about what happens in this film, a.k.a. just not enough comic stuff going on in the last Mm. third, she is Terry Gar. (laughs) She is the the inheritor of that. I'm game for anything. Bring it. Put me in whatever, and I will make you laugh. She is, from the beginning of her career in Winter's Bone... She has shown you that she can be gritty, dark, and dramatic. Right. And she's equally skilled at comedy. Um, She has, like, great reactions. She has a great physical presence. And she's, in this film, quite literally acting with her whole body. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so, just to climb stairs with, with rollerblades. I, I am, I am, I am nothing but standing and cheering for her. So it's funny enough, as you said, and uh, it is exactly, it's released, it's being released exactly at the right time of year. Um, this is a summer. Oh, like, for sure. Woohoo kind of movie. Yeah. Uh, and this is I, a this is a movie to sneak beer into. I don't want to. I don't want anyone to think I'm hating this film. I'm just. I was just irritated by, you know, it's like that old John Waters line where he's like, "Oh my God!" And then they learn, right? <laughs> and and that's always kind of been my attitude about a lot of you know mainstream film. I'm like, okay, I guess we're all gonna learn now. <laughs> I'm grown. I already learned. Yeah, <laughs> you know. Uh, Show me people really misbehaving. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, no hard feelings. And the, uh, well, that doesn't matter. <laughs> I was going to say something else. I'm not going to say something Maybe else. Maybe don't. <laughs> yeah. Um, we saw a documentary called Desperate Souls, Dark City, and the Legend of Midnight Cowboy, which I understand is a mouthful. Yes. It not, is not the not the catchiest title they could no, go with, but it works. Yes, yeah. it is. Uh, it is a a a film about the making of 
the cultural impact of and the social and political climate of the United States in the 1960s that led to the release of the film Midnight Cowboy from John Schlesinger. At the time, what became uh, the first and perhaps only X-rated film to win the Academy Award for Best Picture. Yes, to this day it does hold that distinction, although and several... And you do learn in the film what that X-rating meant and why it happened and what it means now. And yeah, so yeah. talk about but it. But years later they did get an R without they, they, changing they, it they, at all. Yeah, they, they, they resubmitted it, I guess, later on and it became yeah. an R rating, which is all it ever was in the first place. Exactly. Uh, yeah, so this is from uh, Nancy Bursky, and uh, she did... Uh, she well, she produced the movie Loving about the 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 the, the biopic about the, yes. the the Lovings, um, and you know this is a film that basically, um, it, it, like you said, it provides a context for where this movie came from, what it meant, and and how it changed things. And so, you know, she's looping together like. You know, interview. You know, the talking head interviews you expect. John Voight is in this. Jennifer Salt is in this. She's in the film, and also her father, Waldo Salt, wrote the screenplay. You get recordings of vintage interviews with the late John Schlesinger, with Dustin Hoffman, um, but you also get, you know, footage from Vietnam or footage of Vietnam protests or footage of like the you know decaying uh, urban inner cities of the late sixties. You get. Other sort of, you get like, you know, how does this tie into Italian neorealism? And well, here's a clip from Germany year zero, you know. Um, And so it's this really wonderful kind of um, uh, essay, basically, Uh about about the movie. And so if you're going in expecting it to be like kind of a DVD extra, it is much smarter than that. Mm -hmm. And it's really beautifully uh, put together. It's this sort of impressionistic, you know, take on the 1960s and... Uh, you know, and I feel like I've seen so many movies about the 1960s and about the cultural upheavals and the, you know, the artistic uh, whatever. And this felt like they had maybe kind of found a new way in on talking about this stuff. And I, and I need to rewatch Midnight Cowboy. It's, I, I think the last time I saw mm. it was for the, the 25th anniversary reissue in 94. It's been a good 30 years since I've seen it. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, and yeah, I, I, I again... I'm I'm older now. I'm sure I will take it in in a different right. way than I did back then. Yeah, I was in my twenties when, yeah, I, same when here. I watched it. Uh, but this is a really beautiful film, and and uh, I, I just I found it really provocative. Uh, there's some great interviews with Bob Balaban, who plays one of the gay you know tricks that John Voight has. They talk about how this sort of is and isn't a queer film in that you know Schlesinger himself was gay. I think he came out during the shooting of the film, mm-hmm. uh, but you know. The Voigt and Hoffman characters, it's not that they're gay, but that they are men who learn to care about each other. Right. And that maybe only a gay director in 1969 could have told that story with any sense of dignity. Yeah. You know, and not not been weird about it or whatever. Um, so, yeah. Absolutely. I, no, other if, if a straight guy had directed this, that relationship, this very generous, you know, gentle uh, caring, caring relationship between these two guys would have either been treated with a sneer or held at sort of arm's length or 
something like that. Like they they would have they would have put the no homo stamp on it as soon as they possibly could have. Sure, you know, yeah. So yeah, uh, I I very much recommend this film, and I I don't know how big of a release it's getting, but. Uh, it's uh, Zeitgeist and Kino Lorber, so it, there will be, I'm going to say, a Blu-ray before the end of the year. Yeah. So, I mean, I, going back to when we first saw it so many years ago, I said this on KCRW, but I'm, it bears repeating. When I was young, I saw this, and then I saw Boys in the Band, like, not so far apart. Uh-huh. Like, I was, I, I think I saw this one, and then a few years later, I saw Boys in the Band. But I was in my 20s, and I was still coming out, and I was... And they came out in successive years. I was very, uh, you know, I was a very, uh, uh, you know, uh, rage-filled. Militant. Act up, queer nation uh, young man. And I remember watching these two films thinking, these characters are miserable. (laughs) I need queer characters who are cool like me. No, I, I definitely had the same issue with this one because I was I was twenty seven. I was like, "What is this?" <laughs> and this is what happens when you are young. Yes, you engage with a film that is made before you were born, or made when you were three, or whatever. <laughs> and it's it's a film that's thirty or forty or fifty years old, and you impose contemporary. You impose, yeah. You impose your own ideas about what the world is now, or what you want the world to be, onto this thing from the past, and you either don't know the historical context, or you, and that's forgivable. You can always go learn about it, sure. Or you don't want to know the historical context, and that is not forgivable. Or you don't empathize. Um, or you don't. Yeah, exactly. So. Because I believe, you know, films are expressions of where they exist in the world, what the world was like at the time of their production. When you look at an old movie, you're learning about who made it and why and what people were thinking at that time in history. That thing you were saying the other day about, you know, you want to know about the past? Go look at an old magazine. Right. And read it from cover to cover and you'll see what people were thinking about. Yeah, including the ads. But this documentary makes it very explicit and shows just what John Schlesinger was doing at the time he was bridging all these elements. Uh, the, 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 the realism of cinema versus the artifice of cinema. He was uh, taking things that had been explored in the avant-garde of the 60s and sort of bringing them into the mainstream um, I, I was one thing that somebody says that I was kind of shocked at is that apparently it was really hard to get permission to shoot in New York yeah. at that time. Yeah. And so most movies that were sort of set on the streets of New York were shot on a back lot somewhere. Right. And so the sort of grit of Midnight Cowboy for a lot of viewers was like, whoa, what even is this? Right. And then there's John Voight. Yeah. Now, if you've been paying attention to the recent John Voight. Mm. You might think, ooh, I don't want to hear John Voight talk about anything. <laughs> because he's become kind of a wacky right-wing yeah, the, 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 uh, bit of nuisance. Um, but for me, in this documentary, he is the emotional center. Yeah, He cannot wait to tell you more things. About it. He's one of the talking head interviews. When he discusses the film, when he talks about everything that they did on that film and what it meant to him and how how 
vital it felt to him to be a part of it at the time. Working He's with Schlesinger. Always. And, and the camera doesn't pull away from him doing this. He's always on the verge of tears. Yeah. He gets actually choked up talking about how proud he is of it, how important it was to him, how it changed his life, and how and how much he feels like he owes it. And I just found that very moving. Like, there's still something worthwhile about John Voight, I guess. Um, also, when you see clips from the film, you are reminded just how much he and his daughter look alike. True. It is crazy. You, you. I'm looking at his young face, and I'm seeing Angelina Jolie, and I'm thinking, "Oh my goodness, look at that! Look, look at that!" I, I will yeah. say this: I met John Voight in the '90s, yeah. in Dallas. Yeah, I remember before this. he became politically outspoken. Yeah, couldn't have been nicer. Yeah. Like yeah. we had, we had a reception for him. It was an anniversary screening of Deliverance. He came, had a great Q and A, yep. had a reception, stayed and talked to everybody, yeah. and then when the last person left. He was like, oh, my feet are killing me. I bought a new pair of shoes today. And they're just like, uh. And he kept those shoes on mm-hmm. and talked to every last guest. And I was like, man, you are you are a rare bird. <laughs> <laughs> well, he is a rare bird at this moment in his life. But I, uh, I, 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 I don't know. I have hope for him somehow, <laughs> I guess. Watching him feel here, you know made me think uh oh there's still something going on in you that's 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 based in humanity yes yeah. indeed so yeah because when i saw him come up on the screen like I, when i when i realized he was going to be a, a talking head i was like Ugh, john Voigt, <laughs> please but uh yeah no this is this is a really wonderful film yeah uh we're out of time we are uh, we do have uh, no letters this week. Well, none that we can read anyway, because they're about Spider-Man, and I haven't seen it yet, so I have to go see that before we talk about it for yes. the next uh, one of the upcoming episodes. We'll get there. Yeah, uh, we're we, catching we, up on we a lot of things. We do have a five-star review, as I always like to say. Uh, leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcast, and uh, we'll read it on the air like this one. This is from uh, someone who refers to themselves as the other side of elsewhere. Okay. Subject line, a splendid podcast of the cinema. Splendid. This movie podcast, named after a goofy novelty metal song by the band Mastodon for the Aqua Teen Hunger Force movie many moons ago, involves a married set of film critics, one an academic and the other just the pretty arm candy. Which is which? Okay, wait. You're the academic. Uh, because, no, no, here's why. Here's why you're the academic. I'm not saying I'm pretty, although, I mean, I mean just look at me. Um, really, you, either of us could be either. If you're the academic, no, you're the academic because you are the one who has actually taught at the college level. You've been, uh, you've been a working member of academia. In the in the post in the post uh, secondary level of education, and therefore that makes you the academic. I see. And me, the pretty, pretty, pretty one. <laughs> anyway, 
they update regularly with films of both the multiplex and the art house and the streaming home boxes. Sometimes there are guests. Highly recommended to friends, foes, and fronds. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, other side of elsewhere. Yes, we appreciate it. And if you, you know, uh, if you'd like to be delineate which one of us is actually which yeah i mean uh, we'll, we'll both own both but yeah. you know just curious uh so yeah if you'd like to have your five-star review read on the air leave us one at apple Podcasts, where you can subscribe to this show for free uh are we done yes we are we spoke too much and too long for about too little at the very beginning of this episode and we only got to four movies Oh, well. Such is life. Uh, you can also leave us positive feedback in the many places that we stream, including uh, Spotify, Stitcher Radio, Google Play, Amazon Music, iHeartRadio, CastBox, Podbean, etc. Uh, check me out on my other podcasts, please. You can also hear me on Maximum Film on the Maximum Fun Network. Uh, on Breakfast All Day with Christy Lemire, we are a YouTube show and also a podcast. And I pop into the Deck the Hallmark podcast on a weekly basis to talk about uh, Christmas movies of recent vintage lately. But I'm, I'm there talking about all kinds of stuff. So uh, check all of those out, please. And um, drop us a line at linoleumpodcast at gmail.com. Follow us at linoleumcast on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. And thank you, Blue, for our wonderful theme music. Go check out what he's up to. It's always something exciting at bleu.bandcamp.com. Uh, again, we, uh, we have been sort of doing other things, but we're going to spend the rest of the summer frantically catching up on Fran all the movies. Fran frantically. Frantically. Desperately. That you want to hear us talk about. Sweatily. And, uh, and of course, you know, don't forget, patreon.com slash linoleumknife. We'll be back next time with more. Until then. Goodbye. <laughs>